Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm Charlie Spicer, and this is Case Closed, a show about the times the bad guy didn't get away with it. We'll be back with a new episode next week, but today I want to share a special clip from another true crime podcast you're really going to like. It's called Unsolved. Unsolved investigates a new murder every season. This season is about the murder of a Catholic priest named Father Alfred Kuntz more than 20 years ago. He was in his parish school in 1998 when someone slit his throat. Father Kuntz was very attached to ancient traditions, and he even did exorcisms. Some of the suspects include one of the teachers at the parish school, a Marine claiming to be clairvoyant, and a man who feared the end of the world. You'll even hear audio of Friar Kuntz before his death. So you'll be able to get some insight into why his beliefs and the group of people he called friends made his murder so hard to solve. Unsolved is hosted by reporter Gina Barton at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Check out Unsolved Season 3, The Devil You Know, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. But first, keep listening to hear a little audio from the show. Enjoy. There's an empty, hollow feeling in the church today. The congregation's longtime well-loved leader was found murdered this morning. In March 1998, Father Alfred Kuntz bled to death in the hallway of St. Michael's School in Dane, Wisconsin. Someone slit his throat. Dave Katnaw, a Dane County Sheriff's deputy, responded to the 911 call. I walked up to the subject, and it, uh, it was pretty clear that this individual was deceased. There was a large pool of blood, and there was a, a very gruesome injury to the to the throat area of the individual, who turned out, obviously, to be Father Coons. Dave Mahoney was a detective back then. Now, he's the Dane County Sheriff. He had actually met Father Coons at the St. Michael Fish Fries, where Father Coons was known for putting on an apron and cooking the cod himself. Well, you know, my initial response was one of who, who murders a Catholic priest. What issue could you have to have murdered a Catholic priest. From the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, this is Unsolved, Season 3, The Devil You Know. I'm Gina Barton. I've been hearing about the murder of Father Coons since I moved to Milwaukee back in 2002. It's a mystery that has all kinds of strange twists and turns. 
as I was trying to decide which story to tell in season three of Unsolved, this one kept rising to the top of the list. First, one of my editors said I should look into Father Kuntz's case. And this editor still had a stack of police reports from 1998 in his desk, which was crazy, but not totally unexpected if you've ever been in a newsroom. And then one of my friends, who is also a reporter here and who covered the case back when it happened, suggested that Father Coons would be perfect for season three. So I started looking into it. Then I found out Father Coons used to do a radio show with one of his parishioners, an attorney named Peter Kelly. Peter still had recordings of the radio shows, and he was willing to share them with me. That was really, really exciting. It meant Father Kuntz could tell some of his own story for himself, and we could hear him from beyond the grave. And this, again, is another edition of Our Catholic Family. Today we are going to be continuing our discussion on the Sacrament of Confession with our special guest, friend, and advisor, a very familiar voice to all listeners of our Catholic family, Father Alfred Kunz of St. Michael's Parish in Dane, Wisconsin. And, and you see that the Code of Canon Law is a group of, of regulations that have been outlined by the Church uh, over uh, many centuries. The icing on the cake was when the Dane County Sheriff's Department rolled out a social media campaign asking for tips last spring on the 20th anniversary of Father Kuntz's death. That meant they wanted to work with the media, unlike in a lot of open homicide cases where they want no publicity at all. They think someone out there knows something. Hopefully, that person or someone they know or one of their friends is listening, and we can help find that person and solve this crime. Here's Sheriff Mahoney again. You know, there's a good handful of people that we suspect um, could very well have been the suspect or the, the murderer. I think that this case is able to be resolved, but it's going to require somebody in the community that knew something. That's why we're calling this season The Devil You Know. Father Kuntz most likely knew his killer, and maybe you do too. Father Kuntz was 67 years old. He had been the pastor at St. Michael Catholic Church in Dane for more than 30 years. St. Michael also had a school, which was attached to the church by a long hallway. It was a very small school, with two grades in each classroom and just a few dozen students. A group of nuns used to run the school, but by the 1990s, Father Kuntz had taken over, and he was in charge of hiring the teachers and the principal. He even lived in the school building, in a little apartment with just a bed and a bathroom. There was no kitchen. He usually ate his meals in the former convent down the street, which was also owned by the church. The police told me St. Michael was pretty much the social center of Dane, which is a small farming town about 20 miles from the Wisconsin state capital of Madison. Chuck Nolan was a reporter in Madison in those days. He had never heard of Dane until Father Coons was murdered. It's a place you drive through. You don't really notice it, you know. I don't even know. There's maybe a stop sign. I, don't, there's, I know that there's not a stoplight. You know, it's not affluent except pockets. You know what I mean? The town, you, you see people walking around that are just average, you know. They're just average rural Wisconsin people. It's, it's very white. 
not dismissive, but not that welcoming of strangers. They got their, they, they stick to themselves. Back in 1998, the population of Dane was 621. It's not much more than that now. Gary Hamblin, who was the sheriff at the time, told me everyone pretty much knew Father Coons. Uh, in a town of, you know, a thousand people or less, uh, somebody walking around with a Roman collar is, you know, is, is certainly a recognizable member of the community. In this TV report from that time, you can hear just how stunned everyone was. We're all trying to recover from the shock of the news, but also what apparently um, is an accompanying violence against him in death. Oh, everyone is so upset and nervous and worried about what's going on. A lot of questions. Yes, a lot of questions. Why? Why? Carrie Porter, the lieutenant of detectives, tells me that's the key question the sheriff's department hasn't been able to answer for more than 20 years. Why? Over time, different investigators had very strong beliefs on what they believe occurred and had developed suspects, not enough to charge anybody with a crime. Here's former reporter Chuck Nolan again. You know, wherever your personality tends to go is where it'll take you, you know what I mean? Because there's so many unanswered questions, so many gaps, so many possibilities. Father Coons was a priest with many secrets, and we'll talk about a lot of them during this season. Matt Abbott, another writer who covered the case, tells me that a lot of those secrets didn't come to light until after Father Coons' death, and a lot of them still haven't been fully explained. My gosh, uh, you know, here on the surface, you think you have, oh, what a bunch of holy men. And, and then underneath the surface, you have a lot of dirty things going on. And that added another element of intrigue to the Father Kuntz murder investigation. Alfred Coons was born in 1930. He had seven brothers and sisters, and they grew up on a farm in central Wisconsin. On the side, his parents made cheese in the basement. Chuck Nolan talked with Father Coons's brother, Benedict, about their childhood. And he told me about, you know, the, the, they had this Depression era cheese factory in the basement. And, and you know, I got to take a peek at it. I, I didn't know what I was looking at. It was just, I don't know, it was just tubes and tubs and stuff like that. And that's how they made their living during the Depression. They made cheese. It was a dairy farm, you know? He told me another story about, uh, how their father, in the, in the, who were very obviously strict traditionalist Catholics, one Christmas Eve gave all their Christmas decorations, their tree, their presents to a neighbor family with kids just to make sure that they had a Christmas because they couldn't, it was the Depression, they couldn't afford to get anything. He gave their entire stuff to another family. On his radio show, Father Coons talked about going to a cathedral with his family when he was a kid. I recall distinctly as a, as a, as a young lad going to a cathedral, and I uh, was very impressed the way the bishop finished Mass and then walked over to the Blessed Sacrament Chapel where, where the door was open, and there he knelt and made his, his thanksgiving while all of the people in church knelt and made their private uh, thanksgiving. Kuntz's brother told Chuck Nolan that Kuntz decided to become a priest when he was just 10 years old. He had gotten appendicitis, and it was the era when they were still using ether. 
uh, as anesthetic. And he went under, and apparently he'd had some sort of vision because the first words when he came out of uh, ether was, uh, Mom, I'm going to be a priest. And that's what he became. Father Coons was ordained in 1956. He told his co-host on the radio show, Peter Kelly, that he tried to model his priesthood after the ministry of Jesus, as described by St. Paul in the Bible in his letter to the Hebrews. I recall it distinctly because I had that saying uh, placed on my ordination inv invitation ah. that his priest is called uh, from men into the world to offer the great sacrifice of the high priest. I need to pause for a minute here and talk a little bit about the history of the Catholic Church. I need to do that because the changes the Church went through in the 1960s play a very important part in this story. Some of the people who went to Father Kuntz's church think the police haven't solved the murder because they didn't understand his relationship with the Catholic faith and with church leaders, and they didn't know how complicated it was. I went to Catholic school for six years, and in high school, I took a class on church history. So I'm definitely not an expert, but I do know the basics. Besides Jesus, the Catholic religion's first official leader was St. Peter. He was one of Jesus' 12 apostles, and he was the first pope. In the early church, there was some evolution in the languages that Catholics used at Mass. It started out with whatever the local languages were, and then it kind of morphed into Greek, and then finally to Latin. Around the third or fourth century, Latin was adopted for the masses worldwide, and it stayed that way until the mid-1960s. In terms of the way things happened during the mass, the priest would stand with his back to the congregation. The choir was usually in a choir loft up on the second floor in the back, and they did a lot of Gregorian chants, which you're hearing in the background right now. Catholics believe that during Mass, bread and wine are transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. So back in the old days, when people went to communion, they walked up to the front of the church and knelt down in front of the altar. The priest would put the communion wafer right on their tongues, the people couldn't touch it with their own hands because it was too sacred. I talked with Father Scott Jablonski, who is now the pastor at St. Michael in Dane, about how things changed in the 1960s. So in 1962 to 1965, there was a Second Vatican Council. Pope John XXIII called for the council, uh, really saying, you know, the church, we need to find better ways of kind of engaging the modern world. And so kind of out of these three, three years worth of meetings, the church came out with 16 documents kind of talking about how can we better engage the modern world. So after Vatican II, priests faced the congregation and stopped using Latin. They would talk in whatever language the people spoke. So in America, they spoke English, in Germany, they spoke German, and so on. People started singing hymns in languages they could understand, and churches brought in different instruments like guitars and violins and flutes instead of just using the organ. There were other changes, too. People didn't have to kneel in front for communion anymore. They would just walk up and receive it in their hands. At first, 
Father Coons did all these new things, just like everyone else. But by the time he died, he had come to believe the changes of Vatican II had corrupted the Catholic Church. Father Jablonski has some ideas about why he might have felt that way. I think there's some real challenges in the church in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Um, then all of a sudden Vatican II came. And, you know, you kind of, that happened at the same time that there are huge social and cultural shifts taking place in the West. Um, you think about 1968, the whole sexual revolution here, kind of uh, Vietnam War going on, you know, a real rebellion against all authority, legitimate or otherwise. I think Father Coons, I mean, his formative years as a young man would have been obviously with the old Tridentine Latin Mass. And then he lived through the council. And after the council, I think he was very much influenced by not necessarily the documents of the council, once again, but kind of the um, popular ideologies of how that council should be implemented. Okay, so back to Father Coons. Like I said earlier, he was the pastor at St. Michael for 31 years. Even at 67, he still had a boyish face. Kind of a ruddy complexion, bulbous nose. He was going bald, but he still had a swish of hair on the top of his head. He was on the short side, but he was muscular and compact. And he'd been a Golden Gloves boxer back when he was younger. Church-wise, he was fine with Vatican II at first. But then he changed his mind. Essentially what happened is that in his later years, Father Kuhn's kind of rebelled. He went back to the old ways, even though church leaders said priests weren't supposed to do that anymore. Father Kuhn said the Mass in Latin, and he also turned into this fire and brimstone preacher. While most of the other Catholic priests were now spending more time talking about God's love, Father Kuntz was always warning people about hell, as he did on this clip from the radio show. When a person commits an individual mortal sin, he is subject to the same consequences of Adam and Eve, and we know that Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise. Secondly, he inherits or he deserves the same uh, consequences as Satan himself. Damnation is not foisted on someone against a person's will. It is that will of turning against God that automatically then chooses evil instead of good and chooses the eternity of hellfire. Here's Peter Kelly, the co-host of the radio show. The message of Father Elkins is one that not everybody wanted to hear. And people don't want to be told what to do. Father Quint would say, no, you can't do whatever you want. You know, the old cliche, if it feels good, do it. No, <laughs> that's not how we are supposed to live. When he wasn't preaching, people saw a different side of Father Kuhn's. Father Kuhn's was a, a Wisconsin farm boy who grew up deer hunting, working on cars, taking care of, of people, who then became a priest with all of the, the sentiments and the devotion that we traditionally would uh, ascribe to a priest. Morris Smith went to church at St. Michael, and she considered Father Coons a friend. He knew that I was a single mom with two kids, and he says, uh, 
he says, do you have enough food? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I have enough food. Do you need anything? I'm like, I don't need anything. I'm a proud woman. I was like, I'm good to go. But on Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving, or right before Christmas, uh, he says, well, it was nice seeing you. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. And he put his hand out. Well, of course I'm going to reach out my hand to shake my priest's hand. All of a sudden, I felt something. He goes, all right, spend it wisely. And he says, make sure you get a turkey for those boys. I'm like, no, 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 because there would be two 20s folded up. He wanted me to get turkey. I called him up one late, one, uh, late evening, planning for some radio recording we were going to do, and he could barely talk. And I said, Father, what's, what's the matter? And he said, it's my hay fever. I was out mowing the cemetery uh, kind of late into the, uh, the sunset, and then my hay fever acted up. So he was a, a man who would, he had a school for the children. He'd baptize the babies. He'd educate the children. He'd give, uh, give them the sacraments. He would marry the young people. He would, uh, there are people that would not die in the hospital until he came to give them the last rites. He would then bury him in the cemetery, and then he would mow their graves. Early on in the murder investigation, the police figured out people either loved Father Coons or hated him. Lieutenant Carrie Porter, who runs the detective bureau, and Sheriff Mahoney told me there was absolutely no middle ground. He was polarizing. People that, uh, that, that liked Father Coons and liked the church were all in, um, and those that weren't were all out. And what were some of the reasons for that dichotomy, do you think? Um, I think he had a very strong personality. You know, he, he felt everybody's kids should be going to, they needed to be homeschooled or schooled in the church and that it was a mortal sin to have your kids going to public schools. So certainly those types of things can be very polarizing. He believed in Latin masses and kept a very strict and tight control of his parish, which in some corners he was honored for that, and in others he had his opponents who believed that he was too too strict and that he should not be as traditionalist on issues like divorce and homosexuality and um, things of that nature. So he, he certainly had his fans, but he also had his detractors. A lot of the people who really loved Father Coons were kind of on the fringes of society. They came to St. Michael because they had nowhere else to turn. Some of them were desperate in different ways, whether that was for love or money or any number of other things. The cops think that any one of these people could have snapped at some point and killed him. Sheriff Mahoney told me that for about two years, the department threw everything it had at the case. Oh, we probably had 20 detectives assigned to this in the very beginning. And I think we actually had the majority of the detective bureau assigned for the first two weeks because I think we interviewed majority of the village of Dane. A few weeks before Father Coons was murdered, someone had broken into the church. But a burglary gone wrong was only one of many theories the police were looking at. Dawn Johnson and her partner were put in charge of the case that first day. She's retired now. I spoke with her on her front porch over the summer. 
we were given a really ridiculous task and with a guy that unfortunately had a lot of skeletons in his closet. There were so many possibilities for who would want him dead. I mean, he, he rubbed many, many people the wrong way. And even the, the renegade that he was from the Catholic Church, they weren't happy with him. Over the years, the sheriff's department has done a lot of DNA testing bringing the evidence back to the crime lab over and over every time new technology emerges. They recently found some new DNA. And from that evidence, they were able to develop a partial profile. It's not enough to put into the National DNA Database for comparison with people who have committed other crimes. And it's not enough to narrow it down to one person. Also, it doesn't match any of the suspects whose DNA the police have collected so far. That doesn't mean those suspects are entirely ruled out. Why? The scientists can't tell for sure when the DNA got there. It may not be connected to the crime, perhaps even coming from someone who handled the evidence later. Still, the lead detective on the case says this new DNA sample is enough to make her set those suspects aside and concentrate on finding new clues. Detective Gwen Rupert has been in charge of the investigation for the past six years. She believes this new sample was most likely left by the killer. I'm told by our wise evidence people, it could have gotten there some other way. I don't see how it could have other than the struggle and the fight, but I'm told that if it rules somebody out, you can't just completely say it ruled them out. So it's just one more piece of the puzzle in a case the sheriff still hopes they can solve. Nobody in a homicide case should go, should be put on a shelf and forgotten. We owe Father Coons a resolution to this case. Next time on Unsolved. It's nighttime. He's in his T-shirt with his belt unbuckled. He's got his pants and shoes on. He's got his monster ring of keys in his hand. So the fact that he's stepping out in the hallway, where is he going and what is he doing? Unsolved is reported, written, and produced by me, Gina Barton. Our sound engineer and videographer is Bill Schultz. Photographer, Mark Hoffman. Artist, Lou Saldivar. Web designers, Aaron Coy and Andrew Malika. Our editor of local news and investigations is Greg Borowski. Our copy editor is Debbie Davis. Our theme music this season was composed by Evan Johnson. The TV news clips you heard in this episode came from WKOW in Madison. I also want to thank Donna Billmeyer, Miles Moffitt, Ashley Lutheran, Meg Jones, Tom Ketting, Rachel Piper, Emily Risto, Anissa Johnson, Rick Wood, Brian Kranz, Joe Hanneman, Elena Weissman, and Taylor Palmby for their help this season. More information, along with photos and video, can be found on our website at jsonline.com unsolved. And please support local journalism. You can subscribe to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel at jsonline.com deal. Thank you.